Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. When Diplomacy Fails presents Britain Goes to War An in-depth examination of the British Empire from the closing stages of the Victorian era to the opening phases of the First World War and beyond. Section 2. Background. Part A. The Golden Age. Chapter 5. British politics in the 19th century can seem like a bewildering maze of ideologies, terminologies named after prime ministers, of great manor houses, interfering monarchs, and a unique regard for what the masses thought. When we claim that an election was won by this party or that, even when we say that X voted for Y, what we really mean is that the very few rich, land-owning, aristocratic families did such things. The average Joe on the street could not vote unless he possessed a certain amount of land or paid a certain amount for that land per year. This classification can be confusing though because the 19th century was one of immense political reform in Britain as reform bills in 1832, 67, and 84 dramatically altered the political makeup of the country, with only the last act actually enfranchising the vast majority of men over 21, so long as one owned property or paid rent for a property, valued at £10 per year. This meant that, by November 1885, when the latest general election with the new reform bill took place, 5.5 million Britons had the vote while in comparison after the first Reform Act in 1832, only barely a million had it. There were some notable exceptions to the rule of reform, of course. In Ireland, less than half of all men had the vote. The wealth requirements remained too high for some, while the most glaring democratic absence was the complete lack of female representation. Times were changing, though. Where once voting had been the privilege of the few landed families, it was increasingly being seen as a right in the final two decades of the 19th century. Granted, it would take a world war for the full effects of the voting reforms to come about, with new legislation passed in 1918 to include most females and all males, and in 1928 to include all males and females on an equal basis, but it was within the 19th century that such changes were beginning to be felt. The growing power of the masses was most obviously felt in the changes they could affect by voting. 
But as we saw before, the public opinion on foreign policy also mattered a great deal to those statesmen that tried to curry favour with the people and shore up their own popularity. The growing force and representation of opinions and beliefs in the media across the country necessitated politicians having strong bases of support behind them. Since now they could be quoted, they could be recorded for posterity, and most importantly, they could be held accountable like never before. The British people were becoming more aware just as their empire grew, more money became available, more information was disseminated to them, and more political representation became possible. In a sense, it is best to view the next few episodes as a crash course in British domestic politics, foreign politics, and how these overlap from the 1840s onwards, so that we have an idea of how the major ideas and characters of the time were shaped and cultivated. We'll start with some much-needed clarification. The major split that existed in the first half of the 19th century in British politics is best defined as Whig and Tory. These two terms date back to the English Civil War, but what do they mean? Roughly, Whigs believed in the importance of constitutional monarchy, the need to increase voting rights, Catholic emancipation, free trade above all, and the abolition of slavery. Tories believed in the maintenance of the political status quo. Some in the early days were firm believers of political absolutism. The Church of England and the royal family were their bread and butter concerns before the malarkey of political reform switched their focus. They drew most of their support from the landed gentry. Virtually all of Tory supporters were members of the aristocracy and owners of grand palatial estates. At home and abroad, Tory politicians sought to maintain the empire and preserve peace by reducing Britain's foreign commitments. In the late 18th and early 19th century, the differences between the two factions became more defined and nuanced. Ideas propelled to the forefront in the French Revolution caused numerous statesmen to reformulate their own ideologies, while the further revolutions of 1848 brought forward further demands for reform that would seep down to even the lowest levels of British society. These new ideas introduced new challenges to the faction's ideological bases. Before long, within the Whigs and Tories, there existed branches of thought on economics, foreign policy, reform, the church, the lower classes, enfranchisement, Ireland, and taxation. The possibility that either the Whigs or the Tories would split over such issues, and that these branches of opinion would become separate entities within Parliament and thus upset the political balance of power within the House of Commons, was first realised in the 19th century thanks to the defining actions of the Tory Prime Minister Sir Robert Peel. For the moment, just so you know, we're going to try to avoid any mention of Conservative or Liberal parties, since the Liberal Party would not exist officially until 1859, and the Conservatives, though they were casually alluded to, were not really an entity officially as such until really after that event. For the sake of convenience, once the Liberals become one unit, we'll begin to refer to the Conservatives as a party rather than an ideology, and we'll do away with the Whig and Tory definitions, but until then, Conservative and Liberal mean ideology, not party, while Tory and Whig, respectively, were the parties that went along with them. Got it? Okay, good. Remember, Whig equals Liberal Party, eventually, and Tory equals Conservative Party, eventually. Don't worry, before long, we'll have a whole host of new groupings to make these distinctions a great deal more confusing and we'll begin our analysis when British politics was on the cusp of just such a division. 
when the Tory Prime Minister Sir Robert Peel assumed power in 1841. Sir Robert Peel achieved a Tory majority in Parliament in the July 1841 election. Among his election promises was the commitment to reform, reducing working hours in factories, reintroducing the income tax at a rate of 3%, and finally, most importantly, he promised to repeal the Corn Laws. The Corn Laws had been established in 1815 to keep high tariffs on imported grains so that Britons would be encouraged to buy from farmers at home. The problem with this protectionist policy was that it drove up the price of bread at home, on grains like wheat and corn, since farmers were in the advantageous position of being able to charge what they liked, so long as they were cheaper than foreign imports, which most people couldn't get access to anyway. Because the landed gentry of wealthy farm owners continued to enjoy massive overrepresentation in Parliament, the Corn Laws remained a staple fact of life since 1815, so effectively for a generation, with the effect that the average citizen was forced to pay an exorbitant price for their bread, higher than most places elsewhere in Europe. This has been viewed by most historians as a good example of Britain's mercantilist policies that we've encountered before. The other one we saw were the series of Navigation Acts. The Navigation Acts were more aggravating to foreign powers, since it restricted trade with Britain to be done on a British ship and on British terms. Such acts favoured the British trader and home islands, but not many others. Similarly, the Corn Laws favoured the wealthy landowners, but took advantage of the rest of society, and reduced to misery the very poorest. It also resulted in an explosion of the cynical gentry putting their land to use in agriculture, since they recognised they can make a small fortune, or in some cases a large fortune, selling their overpriced grains. But again, the top of the social food chain were getting at the expense of the rest. Sir Robert Peel wanted to change this, though it has been suspected that his moves were not wholly selfless. Some historians suppose that Peel was trying to torpedo his own ministry so that he could serve again under a more moderate coalition that agreed with more of his views. Others claim he had grown sick of the opposition to him within the Tory party and that he wanted to use the Corn Laws to flush out the worst offenders. And finally, there are others still who uphold that Peel had bought into the whole free trade policies of some of his political opposites and wanted to use the Corn Laws to really announce this fact. The issue of the Corn Laws was certainly a highly controversial one. It kept wealthy landowners wealthier than ever before and ensured the protection of all farmers' produce since everything from abroad was even pricier. If Peel attacked these laws, he would be attacking these landowners, who happened to have major stakes in politics, and who counted many politicians as friends, some of whom, even more awkwardly, were even politicians themselves. It helps to compare to the abolition of the slave trade, where speeches were made calling for the evil trade to come to an end, to the very people in Parliament who depended on the slave trade to keep their incomes high. The Tories would have almost certainly fractured were the Corn Laws repealed, the wealthiest would side against Robert Peel, and the more moderate, with less agricultural friends or interests, or perhaps a greater concern above all for their common man, would side with him. There were stumbling blocks Peel had to consider as well. Factory owners, mostly represented by the Whigs in Parliament, claimed that Corn Laws kept the wages that they had to pay unsustainably high, since they had to pay a worker enough to feed his family, but feeding that family was so expensive because of the Corn Laws. 
you can probably see where this is going. If Peel decided to abolish the Corn Laws, he could not only be accused of ruining his party's support base, but he could also, most damagingly, be accused of betraying his party members to the interests of the Whigs. Knowing this, Peel went ahead anyway, and was finally successful after many years of trying on the 15th of May 1846. The effects were almost immediate. Peel experienced jubilation after seeing his repeal act passed by almost 100 votes in Parliament. While an interesting cameo played by the ailing Duke of Wellington in the House of Lords ensured it was passed there too. Following this victory though, Peel then failed to pass a new Irish bill, a not-so-savoury bill aimed at giving the British greater powers to coerce the Irish, who at this point were beginning to despair at the worsening situation brought about by the early stages of the Great Potato Famine there. Peel seemed to admit defeat, and his resignation and retreat to his country estate is regarded by some as the proof that he planned to end his ministry all along on the issue of the Corn Laws. In particular, Paul Edelman, in his book, Peel and the Tories, 1830-1850, takes the view that Peel was motivated purely by political, rather than humanitarian, concerns. Had Peel truly cared for the plight of the Irish, the unfortunate nature of whom would only become so harrowingly apparent in time, then he would surely have done more to ease the burdens upon them, rather than repealing the Corn Laws. Repealing the Corn Laws was a great thing to do for obvious reasons, don't get me wrong, but the effects of its abolition would take at least three years to be felt, since part of the process for abolition was allowing the tariffs to taper off slowly, rather than suddenly making them disappear. If Peel had wanted to simply give the Irish bread while they starved in their hundreds of thousands, he could have just shipped some over rather than gradually making it cheaper each year. Considering this, it is perhaps not much of a surprise to note that Peel once said of the Irish, There is such a tendency to exaggeration and inaccuracy in Irish reports that delay in acting on them is always desirable. Hold on a minute, Zach. Have I got lost? I thought this was Britain goes to war. Why are we talking about corn laws? Well, history friend, I'll tell you why. The corn laws, despite their apparent unimportance in the grand scheme of Britain going to war in 1914, were important, because they were a defining moment in the history of the Tory and then the Conservative Party, as well as, as we'll soon discover, for the Whig and eventual Liberal Party. From this point onwards, it would split the Tory party into the Peelites and anti-Peelite factions. In 1859, the Peelites, fans of free trade above all, social reform and the improvement of harsh labour conditions, would merge with some radicals and Whigs to form the Liberal Party. From that point onwards, British politics would never be the same again. The Liberal Party may well have emerged without the splitting of the Tory party and the addition of the Peelites to their ranks, but just like the later splitting of the Liberal Party in the waves that its breakaway faction made in government, it is difficult to conclude that the future of the Liberals would have been anything other than different, perhaps less rosy, without their split. By 1859, in any case, you had a definite split between Conservative and Liberal. Sure, the Tory and Whig ancestry was still visible, but British politics was maturing into the point where Conservative and Liberal were the names of the party, not just the ideology behind it. All these groupings needed, it seemed, were great leaders to spur each party on to the next age. In the event, both parties got their man. 
The Tories would get the Jewish lawyer turned author turned politician and later favourite of the Queen, Benjamin Disraeli. While the Whig Peelite Alliance turned Liberal Party would get the polarising tree-chopping evangelist. The Tory MP turned Liberal Prime Minister and, not to mention a former Peelite himself, William Gladstone. The rivalry of these two men would not just establish both of their political careers, it would define their individual political legacies. Their personalities, passions, concerns and actions shaped the British political scene and its world long after they had gone, and ensured that well into the 20th century, their names were still well remembered. Benjamin Disraeli was born to a Jewish-Italian family in London in 1804. His family were of moderate means, but Disraeli was far from the aristocratic upbringing and society which he would later attach such romantic notions to or base his novels on. In 1816, at the age of 12, Benjamin was baptised as Anglican thanks to his father's breakaway from the London synagogue where he had been based. This conversion did not just dramatically alter Disraeli's later convictions, though Benjamin rarely regarded his own Jewish roots with much interest, unless they impeded his political progress, they also enabled him to enter politics. But politics would have to wait, because when he was 17, he was hired as a clerk for a London-based solicitor's firm. A basis in law would arm Benjamin to develop as a person and eventually become a fully-fledged lawyer, so his father Isaac hoped. Even at this stage, Benjamin would later recount that I had some scruples, for even then I dreamed of Parliament. Blissfully unaware of his son's grand ambitions for politics and writing, Isaac Disraeli was concerned when Benjamin left his comfortable job in the firm to train as a barrister. Following advice from a family friend in 1824, Benjamin then determined that he couldn't be a barrister either, and would be better suited to the life of an author for the moment. He made a stab at that career, but for the moment nothing seemed to stick. Disraeli then took the unfortunate decision which would haunt him for the rest of his life. He began speculating on shares in mining companies within South America. Almost at the same time he tried to invest his creative juices. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. ...into the construction of a new newspaper to combat the times. It was called the Representative, and was meant to promote the interests of mining companies and the politicians that supported them. However, the mining bubble burst in late 1825, and this meant that when that happened, Disraeli lost virtually everything. He was saddled with debts that would last the vast majority of his political career. There was a light at the end of the tunnel, though. Disraeli was so infuriated with how the representative had been controlled, edited, and then run into the ground, that he would satirise its editor in his latest novel, Vivian Grey. This novel was a major success because it provided a window into the aristocratic high life that Disraeli so desired to share in. Since it was published anonymously from 1826 to 7, few grasped that it was essentially a retelling of Disraeli's life up to that point, but when the truth got out, Benjamin found himself under fire from numerous elites and gentry, who asserted that he ought to have known better, while he also cultivated bitter animosities, by portraying his former associates in the failed paper and mining experiences in the worst possible light. The backlash from these experiences, combined with his own indebtedness, contributed in the late 1820s to Disraeli's nervous breakdown. Persuaded by his sister's fiancé to travel abroad for a time and take a break from the stuffiness of the capital, Disraeli attempted to leave his past behind with a tour of South Europe and Africa in 1830. Robert Blake, one of Disraeli's many biographers, asserted in his book, Disraeli's Grand Tour, Benjamin Disraeli and the Holy Land, 1830-31, that Disraeli established many of his innermost convictions about the Ottomans, the Eastern Question, and the Dardanelles Straits, and also provided some new inspiration for later novels. Jonathan Parry, another of his biographers, wrote in the book, Disraeli, Benjamin, Earl of Beaconsfield, 1804 to 1881, that the trip had, quote, encouraged his self-consciousness, his moral relativism, and his interest in Eastern racial and religious attitudes, end quote. Upon his return, he wrote a further two novels, before declaring himself finished with writing about himself, and tried his hand at something he had always regarded as his end goal, politics. Disraeli's political baptism reflected his own convictions within his character. As a converted Jew from an upper-middle-class family in London, Disraeli was neither an economic nor a dynastic match for the aristocratic families that he so wished to emulate. At the same time, his very tendency for dramatism and the novels that had opened up the aristocrat's life seemed to position him as something of a radical. His friends were thus surprised when they learned that Benjamin planned to write for an anti-Whig pamphlet and were equally confused when he expressed irritation at being associated with that pamphlet's high Tory readership and belief system. At the time that he contributed to the pamphlet in 1832, less than one man in seven were entitled to vote, but the reform bill of that year threatened to blow this monopoly of the wealthy man wide open. Favouring protectionism, uncomfortable with the radical protestations of the Whigs, and unwilling to side with the declining Tories at the same time, 
Disraeli nonetheless picked the lesser of two evils when he stood for the first time as a radical Whig in both general elections of that year. He was unsuccessful each time, but would soon find his feet on the opposite end of the political spectrum. In 1835, Disraeli began to make waves once he was introduced to mutual friends in the Tory system. Following some persuasion, Disraeli finally elected to adopt the Tory cause as his own, and when the Parliament was dissolved in 1837, following the death of William IV and the succession of Queen Victoria to the throne, Disraeli stood for election as a Tory and was victorious. He would remain in opposition for only a few years, for in 1841, as you'll recall, Sir Robert Peel's Tory ministry acquired the majority necessary to rule the country. It was with rampant optimism and perhaps a touch of delusion that Disraeli expected a position in this new government. Instead, he remained a backbencher, aware of the fortunes of one Mr. William Gladstone, who had acquired the position as President of the Board of Trade. Disraeli's jealousy of a man five years his junior succeeding in politics before him were not extinguished by the collapse of Peel's government once it repealed the Corn Laws in 1846. So long as he was on the backbenches though, Disraeli sought to better himself by learning of foreign affairs and educating himself on political and economic matters. Disraeli also acquired experience debating the then Whig notable Lord Palmerston in 1842, and this performance gained him notoriety among a reforming group of Tories who called themselves Young England. Lord Palmerston had begun his career as a Tory, but had split from the party in the late 1820s over such issues as free trade and Catholic emancipation, which the Whigs and later the Peelites would soon find common ground over. Palmerston was to be an essential figure in the Liberal Party for the middle of the 19th century, serving extensively in foreign policy and eventually as Prime Minister. We will soon encounter more of him. It is thus quite notable that a relative nobody like Disraeli at this point would be willing to stand up to him in Parliament, while it is even more notable still that Disraeli could have been perceived to have got the better end of the debate at this time. Now that Disraeli was counted as something of an equal among his colleagues, he could justifiably claim to have made it in politics in spite of his non-aristocratic roots. Indeed, Disraeli was the de facto leader of this splinter group, Young England, which continued to oppose Peel's ideas right up to the point that the Corn Laws tore apart the Tory party itself. In 1846, Peel left with the majority of the Tory party's most experienced and qualified MPs. In favour of free trade and even greater enfranchisement, these Peelites ingratiated themselves towards the Whigs, their former political enemies in Parliament while Disraeli, for all intents and purposes, seemed to now stand at the helm of the now rudderless Tory ship. Disraeli was deemed the only Tory MP capable of mounting sufficient oratorical defences of protectionism and the romanticised feudal policies of the remaining Tories. It was the great flight of so many distinguished Tories that actually proved a boon to Disraeli's fortunes. With Peel had also gone numerous men which Disraeli would normally have to compete with for office, including... William Gladstone. Now that the power vacuum had emerged, Disraeli just had to prove that he was capable of filling it. However, it was easier said than done for Disraeli to emerge out of nowhere to seize the premiership. Even office would evade him for a frustratingly long time, while years of political turmoil followed the splitting of the Tories in the late 1840s. 
Revolutions on the continent injected more radical ideas into the Whig party, and for the moment prevented the Peelites from combining with their former political rivals. Such considerations and their apparent languishing in opposition caused many in the Tory party to wish that the Peelites would be reconciled. Thus the formation of new Tory ministries over the years almost always came with the hopeful offerings of positions in the government to old Tory Peelites, now in opposition. These included offers to William Gladstone in the 1852 minority Tory government of Lord Derby, whose grouping of Tory and protectionist MPs were not strong enough to pass bills smoothly. Fears of political deadlock and defeat down the road, and the belief that he would not be able to implement the acts that he wanted, made Lord Derby think twice about accepting the premiership in 1852, but he knew at that stage that his country's politics left him with few other options. Such a clarification is important because Derby had initially hoped to offer Lord Palmerston, Whig MP and its Minister for Foreign Affairs from 1846 to 1851, the position of Chancellor of the Exchequer. Palmerston had messily divorced himself from his former position as Minister for Foreign Affairs in late 1851 when it was learned that he had sent an unauthorised note of congratulations to Napoleon III for his recent coup in France. So Derby hoped he could count on Palmerston's experience in politics to beef up his new ministry. Yet Derby was to be disappointed. Palmerston refused to serve in a ministry that did not hold a majority. And so Derby, dejected and only recently having lost his father, turned instead to the Tory firebrand whom his colleagues had previously found so hard to trust, Benjamin Disraeli. Disraeli did not care a whip that he was Derby's second choice, though he did claim himself ignorant of the responsibilities incumbent in the position of Chancellor of the Exchequer, Disraeli believed that this was his opportunity to shine. In early December 1852, he put forward his budget to the House of Commons, and in a three-hour speech established himself as a fantastic orator and a commendable political force. Just as he sat down and MPs prepared to vote, a singular figure stood up in protest. It was William Gladstone. Gladstone ignored the shouts from opposition and began to embark upon a legendary critique of Disraeli's budget. As good as Disraeli had been at establishing his own position, Gladstone proved far better at knocking him back to earth. In his three-hour speech, he split MPs once again, and Derby himself supposedly predicted the fall of his own government. The budget was defeated by a slim margin, but this was enough to persuade Derby to resign. The Earl of Aberdeen, a Peelite, took over the premiership, while William Gladstone, the man who had destroyed Disraeli's political chances, certainly in Disraeli's mind, took Disraeli's old place as Chancellor of the Exchequer. It was not a slight or a victory that Disraeli would ever forget. Now the leader of the Tories in the House of Commons, Disraeli was so loathed by his former Peelite colleagues that any chance of reuniting the two Tory pillars remained impossible and the split now ingrained itself even further in British politics. As Whigs and Peelites in a loose alliance shared yet more government positions under Aberdeen's ministry. William Gladstone had not made it his life's work to destroy Disraeli's good fortune, but he had emerged from a decidedly stronger political position because of it. Gladstone had been born in 1809, the son of a wealthy slave owner and plantation magnate. Educated at all of the best aristocratic schools, 
Gladstone's early life experiences were the antithesis of Disraeli's. Yet the two would take the same path by entering politics successfully within the same party. Everything was far simpler politically before Sir Robert Peel's explosion so divided the Tories in Parliament. But even before this bomb went off, the fuse had been lit by men like Gladstone, whose favouring of free trade and his strong leaning towards Irish reform established him as one of the Tory party's most radical voices. His family pedigree meant that he entered politics early, but his unsavoury history in the slave trade contributed, some insist, to a taking on of a guilt that could only be cured by saving others from their own circumstances. Gladstone began his infamous night walks in the early 1840s to save prostitutes from their immoral and unsafe profession and provide them with a new lease of life. This admittedly commendable conviction seeped down to his own ideology at a root level. His own personal Christianity was a blend of evangelism and deep spiritual reflection. Whatever your views on this, in time this belief system would be applied to Britain's foreign affairs, while one of Gladstone's greatest electoral victories in 1880 would come directly from it. Gladstone's earliest chance to acquire political experience came with Peel's dramatic ministry, where from 1843 to 45 he served as the president of the Board of Trade. From here he would resign his post over the Maynooth Seminary issue, an Irish crisis representative of the kind of concerns Gladstone possessed for Britain's troubled Irish neighbour. Seated on the backbench, Gladstone nonetheless was an enthusiastic supporter of Peel's free trade beliefs, and left with him to languish in a loose alliance with the Whigs in 1846. When his opportunity to seize the office of Chancellor of the Exchequer came in 1852, Gladstone took it without much thought for the previous holder of the post, Disraeli. Gladstone wanted to use the post as an opportunity to succeed where others had failed. His first act was essentially setting in place a new system of taxation, which was necessary following the removal of so many tariffs and duties in a nation embracing free trade. Britain was essentially switching the burden of making money from its trade to its people, but Gladstone was determined that the burden would not be set too high. He set a limit of £100, which had to be earned in the year before one could be taxed, but he soon ran into problems thanks to the worsening international situation. Britain entered the Crimea War in February 1854, and to pay for it, Gladstone was suddenly faced with the responsibility of appealing to Parliament for war credits, while he also had to face the reality that Britain would soon incur awful debts the likes of which he had never wanted to gain. Though the debts added up, Gladstone simultaneously refused to borrow to balance the books. He increased the income tax from 7 pence on the pound to 14, while he also slapped new indirect taxes on spirits and sugar. In January 1855, when it was learned that a commission into the conduct of the Crimean War was to be appointed, the Earl of Aberdeen, Prime Minister of the Whig-Peelite Alliance, resigned his ministry and Britain was left yet again without a government. Efforts to reorganise the Whigs and Peelites into an effective political force continued to stall in early 1855, but Queen Victoria was eventually persuaded to accept Lord Palmerston, the man who she had urged be dropped as Secretary for Foreign Affairs in 1852, when his unofficial letter of approval to Napoleon III was learned of, as the Prime Minister of the Whigs and Peelites but they almost immediately ran into problems themselves. 
With the Crimean War raging and public confidence in its continuation far from high, Palmerston's new government could not afford further foreign distractions. However, when it was learned that, after years of tension and insults following the First Opium War, the Chinese had once again insulted the British flag, the decision was made in Parliament for war against China as well. It was a terrible conundrum for Palmerston, who had bemoaned the British involvement in the Crimea and longed for a less assertive foreign policy, so the British political system could properly function and mature. He was to receive even worse news in 1857, though, as the eruption of the Indian mutiny there necessitated an even closer degree of attention be paid not just to India, but also to Russia, who would, it was feared, seize the opportunity to invade from the north, somehow. Gladstone looked upon Palmerston's troubled ministry with a veiled disinterest. He had taken time out of his political life in order to pursue his own personal passions of writing, chopping trees, and saving women of the night from their plight. (laughs) With the defeat of the revolt and the apparent calming of the Russian and Chinese theatres, it seemed as though Palmerston would be able to focus once again on domestic affairs. Once again, he overstepped in the French sphere, though. As news of a failed assassination attempt on Napoleon III by an Italian nationalist prompted him, in a gesture of support for the French dictator, to try and pass the conspiracy to commit murder bill, which hugely increased the penalties attached to any suspected construction of devices intended to harm. The bill was defeated, and Palmerston resigned yet again in early 1858, leaving the door wide open for Lord Derby and Benjamin Disraeli once again. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 